an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. Welcome to Into the Vertical Blank, Growing Up Atari, Season 2, Episode 15, the Atari 7800 and ST, our next-gen super systems. In this episode, we dig into American Thanksgiving 1986 and discuss our transition from the Atari 800 to the Atari ST with the Atari 7800 squeezed in between. The 7800 provided us with some advanced 8-bit gaming until we saw the NES and knew we needed to move on to a more powerful Atari machine. If the Atari 800 was our adolescence of computer ownership, the Atari ST was our coming of age in the realm of computers. We played tons of games on the system, but also made movies with it, did all of our college coursework on one, game development, and much, much more. Hey, Steve. Hey, Jeff. I thought it might be cool to talk about Thanksgiving, since this is probably a Thanksgiving episode. I want to talk about Thanksgiving, but I want to talk about a particular Thanksgiving. Okay, so so do I. So my particular Thanksgiving would have been, well, last Thanksgiving we did our story about Thanksgiving 1982, and I did the thing about um, playing playing a Star League baseball in the Star League. Oh yeah, okay. Well, so what Thanksgiving are you thinking about? I'm thinking about after we were done with the Atari 800, and we wait, were wait, looking wait. towards. Yeah. We had an Atari 800 still, but we were but but the Atari ST was just so much in our minds at that moment. Right and then. and it's because every so we were like, what are you talking like 1986? Uh, it would. This is Thanksgiving of 1986, <laughs> and we had been buying. Earlier that year and before that, Compute Magazine and Antic and Analog started covering the ST in detail. Oh, yeah. We wanted an ST badly. Our Atari 800 had served us so well from 1983 to 1986, and it was an 8-bit computer, and it was Atari's big 8-bit computer. And we'd gotten Atari 800 for Christmas 83, and we pretty much bought games and downloaded them and programmed stuff and... The Atari 800 was amazing. So we loved our Atari 800. Why on earth did we want to get rid of it? I just, we were looking for pro technology progression. That's all. Because we also wanted a 7800 at that time. Yeah, I'm going to say that I think the reason we wanted to get rid of the 800 was simply because we were always looking towards the future, right? I mean, right. Every, every kid was. You know, you're, if you got a computer, you're like, oh, I want the next big thing. And you start seeing in magazines the detailed bitmap graphics and the fact that it can show 16 colors at the same time. When the Atari 800 or the 2600 or whatever was going to show multiple colors, there's always some kind of trick. 
Yeah, a bitmap 16 color screen, even though I think it just drew us in. I think the ST, everything we'd seen and read about the ST just meant the future to us, and that's why. Yeah, but I mean, the big thing is in Thanksgiving 1986, we made a big decision, which I still regret to this day. To sell the Atari 800. Well, yeah, to sell our Atari 100. We sold, I think we put an ads up on the local BBSs. Yeah. Swamps BBS and Video BBS were the two that we frequented the most because they were the most upstanding BBSs. They didn't that have were any pirate software. In fact, we never got pirate software for the Atari 800, really. Um, not from BBSs. Until no, no, not, not really. A little bit. Usually it's from other pe people, not from right. BBSs. We put our stuff up for sale. And my biggest regret is that we put up our discs for sale, yeah. even the discs that had our own program. Our personal discs. I had one personal like, disc left over. It was a birthday card we made for mom that would boot up. And I still, I, that disc is somewhere in our stuff. Oh, we got to find that. You got to find that birthday card. Just all the programs we made. There are a couple games we made, little games and stuff, little things we programmed. We check balancing program for whatever reason. I think we, um, we did a lot of... Um, a lot of little games that, but not graphics. Like uh, mostly things like, the we made a Price is Right game. Yeah, I made a Price is Right game and I uploaded it to the Death Star BBS and got credit for fifty downloads. So I take it back. We must have downloaded a bunch of stuff. Well, from the Death Star, yeah. And oh, then we would make pinball awesome. machines. We'd make pinball machines that would go out all over the world. <laughs> I still have not found any of them on any of the collections. But we make pinball machines as a pinball construction set, and they would come off as executables. And then uh, we got upload, we got download credits for those too. Yeah, I want to. I still want to uh, go through a bunch and see if I can find any of the ones that we made. But those discs were gone forever, which just drives me crazy. I know, I know we sold them to a guy named Manny. I have no idea anything else about Manny. Manny G, um, I think it was Manny G. Yeah, and he was from Wilmington, California. So, but that's all we know. And so we sold our Atari Hunter stuff to get money to buy an Atari ST. Well, we sold and them think, in November and December, right? Yeah, I think, and we think we made that decision or on or near Thanksgiving that year that we decided we're going to go ahead and sell out. Because every year, Dad would put his Christmas list on the refrigerator where we had to put up what we wanted. And I think we, we're going to put an Atari ST up. And then we're like, no, there's no possible way we can get an Atari ST. So instead, what did we put up? Well, we found in a magazine that... Um, Not the, just a magazine, Jeff. We found an Antic magazine. It was an Antic? Yeah, there was yeah. an ad that they were selling the 7800. We wanted that and a, a number of the cartridges that came with it. Yeah, we asked for Galaga and Food Fight. For sure. I remember Mom actually being super happy about this because... Finally, there was something else she could get us for Christmas again that she actually understood, and she sent away for it. But she could get it, and she got us it and a couple games, which was awesome. And then she put them away. She hid it from us. She didn't say that she got it, but we were pretty sure that she got it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we had Joust with it because it was no, one of the... we did not have Joust with it. Jeff, I told you exactly what happened. Don't 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 question my memory. Okay, we got Joust. <laughs> we we got Galaga and Food Fight. It came with. Pole position. And pole position we, two. Pole position. pole position two. And then right after we went to go visit Granny and Van Eyes, we went to the Toys R Us there, and they were they had stacks of Atari seventy eight hundred games, but they weren't on the floor. You had to go to the cage. We had a whole episode about this. <laughs> right, right. I just like our I, first episode. Was I just about remember Toys having joust right away. So no, no, we did. We because we like we went to visit Granny right away. Right. Um, 
it was right before she moved out from Van Nuys. But we went down there and we bought, I think we bought Miss Pac-Man, we bought Joust, and we bought another game as well, like Tower Topple or something. No, so we, have Robotron, Tower we have Robotron too, so it may have been Robotron. Oh, yeah. So we bought, we did, we bought a bunch of the games that, that we'd been waiting for since Electronic Games had the 7800 in it in 1984. So we'd been, we'd been waiting for the 7800 yeah, for a I long know. time. And so we sold our Atari 800, and then we had our 7800. And there was like six weeks there where the 7800 was like the greatest game system ever because it was the only thing we had. And I know you have a pretty good story recorded about that, Steve, so let's hear that right now. Please note, we had a few quality problems recording this story, but wanted to get it out for Thanksgiving. So we apologize for any sound problems with the following story. Atari 7800 Christmas. Holy crap, what, Jeff replied. He looked over at me to see that I was reading an advertisement in Antic Magazine. Look at this, Atari 7800 is for sale. October of 1986 was a trying time for Atari 8-bit nerds like Jeff and I. We'd seen the inferior, to us anyway, Commodore 64 reign supreme for a couple years. We loved our Atari 800 computer, but after three years of serious 8-bit computing, we pretty much experienced everything there was to get out of our tan, wedge-shaped machine from Atari's better days. The flood of new software from the early 80s had become a trickle. Most software companies were skipping the Atari 8-bit line in favor of the better-selling Commodore machine. The C64 had become the de facto games machine ever since the USA video game industry imploded in 1983, and it killed us as lifelong Atari fans that the name on that box was not Atari. But Commodore wasn't the only thing on our minds. On occasion, when I caught Saturday morning cartoons, I would see commercials on TV for the Nintendo Entertainment System and its odd robot peripheral Rob. I remember Nintendo as the company that I made Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and the Popeye coin-off games. To me, they were fine games, but nothing special. They certainly had nothing on Atari's coin-ops. Still, it was weird to see commercials for video games again. And I have to be honest, some of the games are pretty good. But still, it had been years since I had seen any images of video games on TV that were not followed by doomsday predictions of crashing markets, addicted kids, and the word fad. In that time, one true fact had been burned into my brain. Video games were over. Computers were the future. And it was true. At this time, even 8-bit computers were being moved out of the way, with the Macintosh, the Amiga, and Atari's 16-bit ST computer on the horizon. On the commercials, the NES kind of looked cheap, and I was sure it would disappear quickly and I'd never hear about it again. As far as I was concerned, video games were dead and computers had completely taken their place. Even Atari coin-up games, which had once been the best games in the arcade, had fallen on hard times. With games like Super Mario Bros., R-Type, and Arknoid competing for floor space, Atari games contests like Championship Sprint and 720 did not stand much of a chance. In short, Atari fans were in a very rough spot in 1986. Intruders had overridden our camp from all sides. Any notion we had back in 1984 that the Tremils would save Atari were long gone. However, we were still loyal. The Atari Fuji symbol was burned into our brains. We had to follow. 
That's why it was so exciting to see in Antic Magazine mail-order companies selling the Atari 7800 in about a dozen different games at rock-bottom prices. The console was $69.99, and most of the games were $9.99 or $14.99. The Atari 7800 and its next-generation games had once looked so awesome in the pages of Electronic Games Magazine in 1984. The machine was backwardly compatible, so we could play the stack of orphaned Atari 2600 games we had ever since our 2600 died and couldn't display an image on the screen. We just had to have one, and this time it was an easy sell. We showed our mom the ad in Antic, and she was only happy to oblige by ordering us a 7800 and two games, Galaga and Food Fight, for Christmas. My mom loved Christmas. She scrimped and saved money all year long to make sure it was a great day for our family. She was allowed to once again, maybe for the last time, get us a gift that we really, truly wanted. The late released 1986 Atari 7800 and cheap games gave her a chance to provide a nice gift for her boys using the money she saved from her job as a teacher's aide. She wouldn't have to ask my dad for a dime to help cover it. This was useful as my mom had moved out of my parents' bedroom and was now sleeping on the couch. She said it was because she could no longer breathe in their room. But the distance between our parents, both rapidly hurtling towards retirement age, was not lost on us. Seeing my mom sleep on our decades-old couch killed me. She didn't deserve to sleep there. I promised myself I'd find a way for her to sleep on a real bed as soon as I could make that happen. After we knew the 7800 was on the way, my brother and I came up with an idea. A wonderful, awful, terrible idea. We decided to sell all of our Atari 8-bit computer equipment, save the money, and combine it with Christmas and birthday money from our birthday in January to purchase an Atari ST computer as soon as they were available in 1987. The plan made no sense at all. We were going to spend hundreds of dollars for a new Atari computer that probably would not be supported by any software, that was not compatible with any other Atari platform, and that no one else we knew had or was ever going to have. Sue us. We are Atari nerds living in the vertical blank. In the next month, I raced to finish the final game I had purchased for the Atari 800, Ultima 4. I spent many hours every day trying to perfect my avatar before school, in the afternoon while I was on the phone with my girlfriend and late at night after and instead of doing homework. By early December, I had managed to make it to the room with the codex, but I never managed to finish the game. At the same time, we started advertising the vast amount of Atari-related equipment we had collected over the years for sale. We started by posting on local bulletin boards like Swamps and Video BBS. We had hundreds of discs, an extra 810 disk drive, 850 interface, Gemini 10X printer, Atari 800, Atari 800XL, 1050 drive, cables, books, games, etc. By mid-December, all but a few of the five and a quarter floppies had been sold, and we pocketed about $400. With two weeks until Christmas, a sudden realization hit us. For the first time in five years, we were nearly gameless. Aside from a Vectrex with the dodgy number one fire button, we had no games to play whatsoever. The next 14 days were mostly torture. Jeff and I busied ourselves trying to earn money to pay for two Christmas dances. We were both dating girls from an all-girls Catholic school, and they had their own dance, and we had ours at our own all-evil public school. And for gifts for said girls and for our families, by the time that mayhem had ended, it was Christmas break, and there were just a few days to wait until the 25th and the Atari 7800. In hindsight, 
Maybe you should have concentrated a bit more on those Christmas dances and the expectations of those rich Catholic schoolgirls from the good side of town. But such was not our focus or ability. Our futures lied in a different place. Still, being gameless was very difficult. The few days left before Christmas moved slower than any days I can recall. While we used to play 8-bit computer games late into the night, now all we had was broadcast TV. By the 24th, we were climbing the walls trying to find something interesting to do. To say getting an Atari 7800 on Christmas morning was as exciting as getting a 2600 in 1981 or an 800 in 1983 would be overstating the facts a bit. It was cool to get one. The best part was seeing the pleased look on my mom's face when my brother and I were pretend surprised when opening the 7800. She knew we were faking it, but she sipped her coffee with satisfaction anyway. However, we did not have high hopes for it. Atari Corp's output had been such a disappointment up until that point, we held back most of our enthusiasm until after we had a chance to boot the machine and play some games. For when we finally did get it up and running, we were blown away. Yes, I said blown away. The packing game Pole Position 2 was near arcade quality. Offhand, I could not find any differences with it in the coin-op. While the coin-op was not a huge favorite of mine, I could still see how much better this version was than pole position had been for the 8-bit computers. Suitably impressed, we tried the next game, Galaga. Galaga had been one of my favorite coin-op games for several years at the time, and I knew the 7800 version would have to be something special to get me excited for it. Luckily, the people at GCC and Atari back in 1983 and 1984 had done a remarkable job with the translation. While a few things looked different, the ships were smaller and less colorful than the arcade counterparts, the game played like a near-exact copy of Galaga. All the same strategies could be employed, and I could feel the home version have you playing for a long time to come. The third and final game we tried for the 7800 was Food Fight. Again, another GCC Atari coin-op from 1983. Right from the outset, we could tell the game would become the showpiece for the 7800. The game was a near-exact copy of the Food Fight coin-op still one of the best and most underrated arcade contests ever produced. Jeff and I spent the next couple of days playing and replaying all the 7800 games. We were amazed, simply amazed at the quality of the games. It was cool to play them in 1986, almost 1987, but it was difficult not to wonder how good they would have seemed if they had come out at their scheduled release in 1984. For a couple diehard Atari fans, this missed opportunity was almost too much to bear. The 7800 rocked, and we were ecstatic about it. The euphoria we felt for the 7800 did not end with the three games you received for Christmas morning. Armed with the desire to experience more of what that amazing machine had to offer, we set out on an after-Christmas-week quest to find as many games as possible for it. Now, this is 1986. The week after Christmas was not at all like it is now. In 2019, the week after Christmas is like Christmas 2, but with gift cards. But back then, the shelves after Christmas were mostly bare. Restocking did not happen until late January. For the most part, stores were open to handle returns and complaints and get ready for New Year's white sales. We were both learning to drive, but not having a license or a car yet, so my mom took us on our quest, a job she gladly accepted. Even in the rush of after Christmas traffic, 
She was only happy to oblige. I suppose she realized this was another fleeting moment she did not want to miss of her boys growing up. The day was like the driving quest when we were little, trying to locate packs of Star Wars trading cards to finish our collection. My mom grew up Catholic, and I'm sure she heard the rumored reputation of Catholic schoolgirls who dated boys from public school. She was holding on to our youth one more time, and I guess so were we. At the same time, finding any shiny new 7800 games to feed our newfound hunger for titles was rather difficult. After trying the local targets, Kmart, Sears, and KB without any luck, we finally managed to find a few new games at Toys R Us in Sherman Oak, California. Even then, the pickings were very slim. Among the game offerings were Miss Pac-Man, Centipede, Dig Dug, Xevious, and Asteroids. They were not even displayed on the store floor. Jeff and I spied them in the video game cage, high up on a shelf, stacked above and behind the mass of Nintendo NES games. The guy working the cage had no idea what we were talking about when we mentioned the 7800, so we had to request each game by name, and he would go through the painful process of searching the stacks as we pointed wildly towards any box that said Atari or 7800 on the side. Still, the process was worth the effort. At 999 to 1999, each of the games was an absolute bargain. We picked up Dig Dug, Xevious, and Asteroids and took them home to investigate. Dig Dug had been one of the favorite games of mine, when it was positioned at the front of the local Manhattan Liquors next to the Tempest machine. While I had been very disappointed with the 8-bit version of the game, the 7800 went captured much of the cute aesthetic missing from other translations. Simple details like the inclusion of a text font that closely matched the arcade game went a long way to separate the 7800 version from all the ones that came before. Xevious had always been an intriguing arcade game for me. The first top-down scrolling shooter that I could recall offered a ship with two weapons, multiple different types of enemies. It was also insanely difficult. One of the most interesting aspects of the arcade was the eagle design that you could fly over when you were close to finishing each level. I was very excited to see this recreated for the 7800. This version captured everything I liked about the arcade game and had me wondering what other wonderful games in the genre could have been made for the 7800. Asteroids, however, was the showstopper. Officially titled Asteroids 3D, it was the version of Atari's classic coin-op we had been waiting for for years. The Atari 2600 version was decent, but sullied with flicker and asteroids that only move vertically. The 8-bit computer version was a slow, jumbled mess, and the 5800 version never released because it was unplayable with the system's idiotic controllers. This meant that all the 7800 had to do was play a decent game and would easily end up on top. However, instead of just being decent, the 7800 version obliterated all previous efforts. The graphics were updated with a cool 3D look, and the gameplay was nearly identical to the coin-op. Beyond that, it offered a two-player simultaneous competitive and team modes, something very rare in a console at the time. Jeff and I were in Asteroids Heaven from the moment we inserted the cartridge into the 7800. Aside from short bursts with other games, including 2600 favorites like River Raid and Vanguard. Asteroids rarely left the 7800 cartridge slot for the remainder of Christmas vacation. When school restarted again in January, our desire to play the 7800 did not subside. 
If anything, we wanted to play it much more. While Asteroids was still a favorite, the other 7800 games started getting a bunch of playing time as well. For at least a week into January 1987, I woke up an hour early just to get a few rounds of Galaga in before school started. Likewise, it was difficult to tear Jeff away from the console after school as he attempted to master Food Fight. To us, these were awesome translations of arcade games, better than anything we had ever seen or played. A couple weeks into January 1987, my mom took my brother and I for a DMV driver's test. Jeff passed with flying colors while I barely made it, but still we both became legitimate driving citizens that day. When we finally save up enough money to buy a car, you won't have to take us to Go Boy to buy records or to the mall to buy video games anymore, I recall saying to my mom as she drove us back home. She was silent for a bit, and then she said, Yeah, be sure to always wear your seatbelt and avoid left turns whenever you can. She was silent the rest of the way home. By our birthday in late January, we still managed to use a bit of our birthday cash to buy 7800 versions of both Joust and Robotron, neither of which disappointed us in any way. So far, the 7800 had not let us down, and we were very surprised as we did not believe the new Atari had the ability to pull anything like this off. Was Atari Corp really part of the next generation of video games? Soon after our birthday that year, Jeff and I visited our friend Wesley Cruz's house. Wesley had been on a ski trip for most of Christmas vacation, and we had been too busy right after school started to go over to his house. He was itching to show us his new Christmas gift, a Nintendo NES. I did not have high hopes for it. Like I said, the commercials for the machine had made it look like the Coleco Atom or Mattel Aquarius. Bizarre, underpowered, overpriced systems with far too many cheap plastic peripherals. The first game he showed us was Duck Hunt, and it proved the point. It was a light gun game that played like all others from about the same time. The gun did not match up right with the on-screen cursor, the action was bland, and all seemed fairly awful. It did not compare well to the nearly pixel-perfect old-school arcade action on the 7800 in any way. However, the second game we played was another thing entirely. Excite Bike on the NES looked and played exactly like the Versus coin-up we had seen in the arcades. The graphics were crisp, the sprites were large, the action was enthralling. Not only that, the game allowed players to create their own tracks and then race them. One other thing we noticed right away were the controllers. Instead of a joystick, they had four arrow buttons and two fire buttons, plus start and select buttons. All of these buttons were top-mounted on a rectangular pad. The pad was easy to hold, and the buttons were easy to press. The 7800 had two fire button controllers too, but they were nothing like the Nintendo controllers. The 7800 Pro-Line controllers, one day called the Pain-Line controllers, were difficult to hold. And with buttons on either side of the controller, it caused your hand to cramp after a short time. I tried to find some kind of fault with the NES and the way the games played or were controlled. But honestly, there was nothing I could identify. It played very enjoyable, new style games, and included next generation features that Atari had not even considered in 1983 when the 7800 was first designed. While the Tremils, who had run Atari Corp, could have redesigned the 7800 to better compete with the NES, they had released it as is, and the machine suffered by comparison. It took about 20 minutes of playing a sight bike before Jeff and I both realized that there would be no future for the 7800. Well, the Atari system had some great translations of old arcade games, that's all it had. It simply could not match the deep excitement of playing games on the NES. There was an unmistakable yet 
indescribable quality to Excite Bike that made us wanted to play it over and over again. This addictive quality did not come from the rinse and repeat game style of Atari's single screen skill games, but from the depth of play and the creative tools that seem to let you play forever without repeating anything. In a sense, the 7800 became our last goodbye to the golden age of Atari video games. We finally got a chance to play games that should have saved Atari in 1984 and could have kept them on top long after. However, in 1987, compared to the NES, they looked like far little too late. The 7800 was a great little machine, but after being held in a dungeon for almost three years, it came out looking like the world, when quickly being conquered by Nintendo, had passed it by. The funny thing was, even though we had thought it was pretty cool, we were not sold on the NES either. The deep qualities that we liked about Excitebike were the same things we liked about computer games. The NES was still just an 8-bit machine, but newer, powerful 16-bit computers had just arrived. Unlike the 8-bit computer party that we had joined a half-decade too late, we wanted to join the 16-bit era on the ground floor. Soon, after a tumultuous Valentine's Day, the Catholic schoolgirls were long gone, and my brother and I were computerless and girlfriendless and looking towards the next big thing. So a couple weeks later, Jeff and I traveled out to Orange, California, our pockets filled with the money we had saved since November to purchase an Atari ST computer from the back trunk of a guy, his name was Art, I believe, who ran the store Computer Games Plus. Honestly, this was the only non-mail order way to purchase an Atari ST at the time. We took the machine home and then embarked on a brand new computer quest that would lead us on all sorts of digital wild adventures. We still played our 7800, especially Asteroids, Galaga, and Food Fight, and over the years even purchased a few more games for it from the bargain mints. However, it took a far back seat to the Atari ST in its 16-bit revolution. The Atari ST was a serious computer, and we were becoming more serious ourselves. Mere video games would not suffice any longer. We didn't quite realize it at the time, but we made our first real adult decision to buy an Atari ST. And by selling our Atari 800 to afford it, we pretty much invested all we had in the world just to get it. In time, the 7800 was put into the broken wooden TV cabinet in our living room next to the crappy old couch where my mom now slept every night. It was the same cabinet that once held our 2600. I don't ever recall playing the 7800 much after that. Soon, its memory faded away placed into the same bit bucket of similar forgotten Atari nerd dreams and went directly into the vertical blank.
so we made the decision right after Christmas that year that we were going to try to get an Atari ST. Yes. I mean, we don't. Sorry, sorry. Take it back. We'd already made the decision to get ST. We decided when, which is going to be two weeks after our birthday, because we had called around in a, a place local to us in Orange, California, called Computer Games Plus which advertised in one of the magazines, I can't remember which, they said they would have Ataris in stock call. That's what they always said. So I called. <laughs> and you called, and they said they would have them like first week in February or something. And we had to make an appointment. So we saved up, we asked for money for a birthday. And we used some Christmas money, which wasn't a lot. We used Christmas, and, we, and the money that we got together from our allowance and from selling our Atari 800, and a fateful like Saturday in February 1987, we drove down to Orange, California, and met Art in the parking lot. In the parking lot, like, like of a Vons or something. Well, or I think Ralph's. it was the parking lot where Computer Games Plus might have been located later on, but I'm not sure. It might have been. It might have been. And Art sold us an Atari ST from the back of his car. Which a could five, not have looked more shady. Yeah, I a 520 ST with an external th uh, 354 single-sided disk drive. I think it was 354. Yes. Did we get the monochrome? And we got a monochrome monitor. monitor. We got a monochrome because color was going to be 799 to get that. Monochrome was 599. Wait, wait. Could you with the monochrome monitor? Could you show low res stuff? No, 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 no. But we plugged it into a TV because it was. Oh, it that's had, right. Plugged into a TV, and also I actually loved the monochrome look of it. Like I didn't want to do it in color because I wanted because the TV was it just okay. Like a Macintosh when you did it. Yeah, monochrome. when you had that, you basically it was it was like an awesome looking Macintosh, not a. But I mean, when I first got the ST, though, like for, the disk drive stopped working or something. After a couple weeks, the the drive belt came off, and we need some like some guy in um, Chapman College to re-glue the belt back on for us. So the Atari ST started having the Commodore build quality. Yeah, that was the. Problem. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> Everything done on the cheap. Yeah, everything done on the cheap. So, and then uh, did that ST come with any software, or was it just like GF? Did it come with? Um... Okay, so it came with a disc that included the original USA disc, which had, had Neochrome, a uh, basic, and it had logo, and then it had the control panel accessory. What you could use to change the colors of the screen and stuff like that. So, you if you once you put that in, you could use that accessory if you installed it. And there was a book that came with it that explained a little bit about how to do that and a little bit about oh, it came with a VT5200 emulator. It was a few software items on it, and it came with a really nice book that even taught you a little bit of Atari ST Basic, which was kind of oh, cool. that's cool. I know we did a little bit of that, but for some reason. We didn't program in BASIC a lot on the Atari ST. I think because you because you couldn't easily make stuff with like a GUI with the with the BASIC. Not with not with the BASIC that came with it. No, you're right. And so I think we were kind of put out by that because we wanted to do stuff with the GUI. That's why we got it. Plus, it didn't compile. So at some point, we got GFA BASIC, and I'm not exactly sure how, but um, we got GFA BASIC and a manual, and that's when I I even found the monochrome version of my game. But it only works on monochrome. It's the original Zam Zamboozle poker dice, and it's all in monochrome. Really? Yeah. And it was written oh, GFA, cool. compiled GFA Basic. Well, that's cool. I mean, we'd go on to build a a better one of those sauce later. But so you know, I know this episode you wanted to introduce uh, talking about Atari ST, and I know some of the first games that we saw, especially the ones that really enticed us to get in it, the right? magazines, were from Mitchtron. Yeah, Mitchtron. I think Time Bandit, 
Time bad. Uh, yes, and then so I think the what first was that, game what was the ever one? mud pies. Oh, mud so pies. Mud pies. There was a, there was a there's a spy hunter like game that's called Major Motion, um, and there were a couple other ones. There's a game called Tanglewood. I think came out later. It was like the description of it is hilarious. It's like you've never seen an adventure like this, and you really need to read all like 500 pages of documentation to play it because it's like bizarre. But um. <laughs> Two or three times I've written up stories about Mistron and then who were distributed by Microdeal in um, the UK. And then they sort of combined forces and some things were distributed by Microdeal, some by Mistron, it depended. Anyway, I, two or three times I've written up a story about it, but I've never used it on any one of our podcasts. And now I've gone through and re-edited it and tried out all the games on the STE. And I have a story about all of the games from Mistron and the history of the company. And what the games meant to us then, and what what the games are like now. Awesome. Well, that sounds good, Jeff. Why don't we go with that right now? Yes, I'm thankful for the Atari ST. This was the computer that we used all through college, and it was our 16-bit game console in the vertical blank. For this Thanksgiving episode, I'm going to tell a little story about the Atari ST and one of the first publishers that released games for it in the USA, Mitchtron. Welcome to Atari ST Playfield, an extended edition, Mitchtron. I am and have always been an Atari guy. My twin brother Steve and I grew up with Atari machines and progressed from the 2600 to the 800, then the 7800, 520 ST, and the 1040 ST, Atari Lynx, and Jaguar. Along the way, we were especially taken with the computers and had huge collections of games. Most of them purchased, but a few by nefarious means, for both machine families. We purchased the 520ST in early 1987, and after the shops in the USA stopped carrying an array of decent games in late 1988, we switched to the import stores and found 16-bit gaming nirvana from the shores of Europe. By this time, we had sold our 520ST to a friend and had purchased a shiny new 1040STF. Although the ST line of computers would see its peak of popularity in Europe between 1988 and 1992, they were actually quite popular in the USA upon their launch in late 1985. For the first few months of the ST's life, the games of Mitchtron, based in Michigan, were some of the only titles available. Some of these games took full advantage of the ST machine's powerful 16-bit capabilities, and some were nothing more than 8-bit games with a new coat of colorful paint. In 1986, Time Bandit, Major Motion, and Mud Pies were the first titles I remember seeing discussed in magazines such as Antic, Analog, and Atari Explorer. Enticed by the look of these games, and by the need to move on to the next generation computer system, we sold all of our Atari 800 gear in late 1986. 
Even with this sale, we were not able to scrape together enough cash needed for the system right away. With the hope of some birthday money in January 1987, we plan to purchase a system and make our 16-bit gaming dream a reality. A 520ST with mono monitor that hooked up to a TV for color games. With a month or two lag in between computers, we had ample time to read over the magazine articles and advertisements for available ST games. The name Mitchtron was everywhere from the start, and so we'll start there too. Mistron published and distributed many games over the course of its short history. The company was initially named Computer Shack, but rumor has it that they changed their name after pressure from Radio Shack in 1984. Founded in 1982 by high school friends Gordon Monier and Bill Dunleavy to market Bill's TRS-80 and Sanyo-targeted game titles, they would expand to other platforms soon after. The most notable game in the early years was a very well-respected TRS-80 classic called Time Bandit, which was translated to the Atari ST and Amiga a few years later. Bill was very taken with the capabilities of the new 16-bit computers, and in 1985 decided to translate some of his games to the Atari ST and then solicit and market the games from other like-minded developers. Mitstron became affiliated with UK-based Microdeal in 1987 to co-market and distribute each other's games, especially as the stateside market for ST games started to dry up. Microdeal produced a number of good Atari ST games, such as Leatherneck, that were distributed in the US by Mitstron. After games, Mitstron moved on to create some very well-respected Atari ST development tools, but declining sales in the USA and eventually UK led to its demise and it was sold to Creative Computer Corp in 1991. Now, on to the ST games from Mitstron. The first game that we're going to discuss is Flipside, released in 1985 by Ken Olsen, and Phil Hollier. Flipside was one of the first Atari ST games of any kind. It was a very simple Othello reverse variant. Replay today. Flipside is exactly as I remember it, a low-res version of the classic Othello game. There is no sound, but it plays a very good game and is a challenge to beat at the higher skill levels. There's nothing fancy here, but for one of the first games ever created on the system, it holds its place in time very nicely. Grade C+. Many better games would follow in the later years, but this classic is still one that I would play today. From the media back then, Antic Magazine, February 1986. Review. Flipside plays a formidable game. It beat me most of the time at the lowest skill levels, and I've been playing Othello for several years. From Computer Gaming World, January, February 1986. Flipside, also from Mitstron, is a competent implementation of Othello for one or two players. It's also the only game that works with both color and monochrome monitors. Major Motion, 1985, by Jeffrey Sorensen and Phil McKenzie. Major Motion was a very well done version of the arcade classic Spy Hunter. It was controlled using the mouse, a mistake that would not be duplicated by many future ST action games. Basically, you race your car up the screen with the mouse, collect bonus weapons by docking with an equipment van a la Spy Hunter and Knight Rider, and blow other cars away. 
Back in the day, we had a copy of this. I'm pretty sure it was one of the first titles we purchased for the machine. The game was lacking in the visual department and sonically, it was pretty weak, but it played very well. And I remember being very happy to have a Spy Hunter clone on our shiny new Atari ST. Replay. Major Motion originally used the mouse. I have found versions that use the joystick, and this game seems to be much easier to play with the joystick. Some of the versions out there will make you plug the joystick into port zero, not port one. Look out for those. I found that the Peter Putnick hard drive version has a separate joystick option that you can start called joystick.toss. Use that version. Grade, B minus. It looks dated now, but plays a mean game. The racing, shooting, and docking action is all there, and I had a few nice minutes playing this game. The sound effects are only passable, but the mutable music is very well done. It has better visuals than Mud Pies, which we'll get to, and actually looks like it could be a 16-bit game rather than an 8-bit retread. But later on, an Amiga version would be made that looked much, much better. What the media said back then, from Computer Gaming World, January February 1987. Quote, however, this leads me to an ethical dilemma. I like the game, but it is, strictly speaking, about 80% a thinly disguised copy of Spy Hunter and 20% unique material. Mud Pies by Jeffrey Sorensen and Philip McKenzie. I remember this being the first commercial game for the Atari ST of any kind advertised in Antique and Analog magazine. This was a pretty simple 8-bit game that seemed to have been reskinned and placed on the ST. The action's pretty good. Run around the screen throwing pies, food fights, silent clowns. The game also seems like a slow-moving Robotron and didn't really show off the audio-visual capabilities of the machine. Back in the day we had this title, I don't think we purchased it. Either it was a legit copy that we borrowed or it was a copy, sorry Jeff and Phil, that we got from one of the, our friends or a BBS. Don't remember playing it very often, but I do remember being frustrated with the mouse controls and not really being blown away by the visuals. I think back then I thought it looked like an ugly Commodore 64 game. Replay. I downloaded the 8-bit chip hard drive adapted version. This looks like a version that was released into shareware and has added joystick control. Now when I play Mud Pies with a joystick, I actually find it kind of fun and quite good. The graphics are not pretty. But there's some fun to be had, and the music tune, which can be turned off, didn't detract from the game. It actually reminds me of a colorful Apple II game, a combination of Berserk and Robotron, and Food Fight, especially Food Fight now that you can use the joystick. Okay, grade for this one. It still doesn't rise above a C+. While it doesn't look pretty, it's action-packed and combines elements from two of my favorite games, Food Fight and Robotron. What the magazine said back then. Antic, February 1986, review. Quote, Mud Pies essentially takes no advantage of the power of the ST. In fact, if it were released for the 8-bit Atari, I'd be disappointed. It looks very much like a game designed for an 8-bit that was quickly transferred to the 68,000 machine to reach a software-starved market. Hey, that's what I thought too. From Computer Gaming World, January February 1986. It's competently programmed but as forgettable as dozens of microcomputer games. Only buy it if you have money to burn. Time Bandit by Larry Hafner and Bill Dunleavy. Time Bandit was an action-adventure maze-scrolling shooter that too often has been mistaken as a gauntlet clone. It was actually based on the arcade machine Tutankhamen. In fact, 
It predates Gauntlet, having been a TRS-80 and Sanyo game in 1982. Even though the graphics are relatively simple, but well done, the gameplay and action in this title is some of the first to show off the capabilities of the new Atari machines. The goal in each of the 16 beautifully crafted lands is to collect artifacts and blow stuff up. The lands vary in theme through various recognizable time periods. These include such time periods as ghost towns and Egyptian ruins. You start with 14 lives and receive an extra after you collect a thousand cubits. You can earn cubits by solving puzzles, collecting artifacts, and shooting stuff like snakes and hilarious rolling eyeballs. There's even a level that contains an entire text adventure to play through. Back in the day, after reading about this game for months, it was one of the first titles we purchased from the old software, etc. in the mall. Remember those? I must have played this game for days on end. Colorful graphics and humorous sprites made this game very enjoyable to play. Replay today. On first boot up, you realize that a lot of time was spent creating this quality title. It's for one or two players. Each can use a joystick. Player one uses port one or joystick two. No fiddling with the mouse for a single player game like some of the early Mistron titles. This is the way games were meant to be played on the ST. Everything in the game still has a slight 8-bit feel to it compared to later 16-bit games, but the sheer quantity of animations and sprites as well as colorful presentation could not have been done on any machine before the 16-bits were introduced. You will have a blast running around gauntlet style blowing up all of the enemies, but the game has more to it also. I still love blowing up those rolling eyeballs, and the adventure elements make it a must-play for anyone who missed it the first time around. Okay, what kind of grade do I give this? A B plus. It has very pretty early 16-bit visuals, more like 16-color 8-bit visuals, but it still looks good. The scrolling is masterful for this time early in the ST's life. There were later games like the Great Diana Sisters that couldn't even figure out how to scroll on the ST, but the Mitztron guys did it with barely a decent dev kit. The quality of American-made Atari ST games was high at the beginning. It's a shame that no more than a handful of good games were created and released for systems in the USA. More importantly, the game is fun. should be played by anyone who enjoys this genre of games. What interviews and magazines said. From Atari Legend, interview with Larry Laughner. Actually, the game was originally called Pharaoh and was heavily based on the arcade game Tutankhamun. From Antic Magazine, October 1986, review. It will be the ST arcade game by which all others are measured for some time to come. 8-Ball by Stanley Crane. This was one of the first physics-based sports titles for the Atari ST. I remember playing it quite a bit and have the entertainer song from the title screen firmly planted in my brain. This title is well done, but limits the player to just one game of pool, 8-Ball. Replay. The Entertainer chiptune is very well done and the physics of the pull action are modeled nicely, especially for an early title like this. Everything is pretty small graphics wise, but colorful. And since I'm not much of a pool player, darts and foosball are my bar games, I may not be the best judge of accuracy of the action. Grade B. It looks nice, it plays nice, but there are certainly much better looking pool sims that came after. It is a very well done early Atari ST game that used the 16-bit processor and might have been a stretch to reproduce even on the best 8-bit machines. What the magazine said. From Antic, March 1987. In comparison to the other pool title called ST Pool, overall 8-Ball has the most realistic action. Although 
Even it falters a bit when the cue ball goes crashing into a pack of closely clustered balls. Tanglewood by Ian Murray Watson and Pete Leon. Later published by Microdeal also. All these games were actually published by Microdeal and released in into Europe. I don't remember playing this one much, if at all. It involves you taking control of five robots on an alien planet by remote control to solve puzzles and problems. The game screen is made up of control switches and other devices to monitor and program the robots. The story involves you helping your uncle reclaim mining rights for dog crystals and ice emeralds. All of this happens on a strange planet called Tanglewood. The game is very long and complex and you need the manual. I remember seeing the Tanglewood packaging and being enchanted, but never really playing it back then. Replay. This game is complicated. I've now finally read through some of the instructions from Atari Mania, and I had about 30 minutes to try it out. More time is needed to really delve into this one. 8-bit chip didn't have a hard drive version, but I found a hard drive conversion that Richard Davey from the old www.atari.st site gave me a while back. It works perfectly on the Atari ST, but I still need to go back to Atari Mini and read the instructions before I figure it out. Grade. From what I can tell, this is an incredibly well done game. I'm going to give it a B plus. The game warrants a lot of time spent playing it. The graphics animation are very well done and anyone interested in sort of God style games should probably take a look. From the magazines, Atari ST Log, February 1989. Tanglewood is a great, sprawling, complex game that utilizes 700K of graphics. It's all mouse and not one keyboard poke is needed. The animation is faultless. The detail will knock your socks askew. If the colorful graphics don't get you, the multiple sound effects will. They are superb, from the underwater gurgles to the mobile motors. From Antic Magazine, June 1988. Ultimately, the game becomes a search in which you try to locate objects and use them properly. Tanglewood can confuse and possibly challenge you for days to come. Okay, on to the next game. Lands of Havoc, 1985. Lands of Havoc was a game that we had on our first pirate game disc that we got from a friend who also had an Atari ST. Sorry guys, that Mr. Sean. Contrary to popular, well, some popular beliefs, Lands of Havoc is not a Mitztron game. It was produced by Microdeal's in-house wizard, Steve Back. He also created Goldrunner, Leatherneck, James Pond, and many other Atari ST classics. It's unclear whether this game was actually distributed by Mitztron in the USA. We never had a legitimate copy of it, but did have the pirate version I mentioned. It was an ambitious, maze-based 2000 screen shooter, a Commodore 64 conversion. It didn't take advantage of any of the ST Machine's 16-bit power, really, but holds its place in time as certainly one of the first, if not the first, commercial game for the system in the UK. Other Mitstron games. Some distributed by Mitstron, but developed by other companies. Cards 1986 by Jay Weaver Jr., a selection of solitaire card games. Perfect Match 1986 by Mark Nelson, an educational game. Techmate Chess, 1986, by Susbo Software, or Sabo Software. Goldrunner 2, 1988, by Microdeal. Alex Herbert, David Whitaker, John Dower, Martin Kenwright. A sequel to Goldrunner, but a very different game. So why am I thankful for the Atari ST? I'm thankful for the Atari ST 
for giving us our 16-bit game machine that included all the capabilities of a fantastic computer and all the great games that we could ever want to play. That's it for this time. I just wanted to say that the Atari Playfield name is a tribute to a long-running series of articles with the same name in the wonderful but sadly defunct USA-based magazine Computer Gaming World. They covered Atari computer games from 1981 through 1986, but sadly stopped all but spot coverage, if any, in the following years. Still, they held out with Atari computer coverage longer than most multi-format magazines before moving on. And that's it this month for both the Atari ST Playfield and why I'm thankful for the Atari ST. We'll be continuing the Atari ST Playfield section in each of the podcasts coming up. There are no good Atari ST podcasts out there that cover games, and we plan to cover them in detail. We also are covering them on our Facebook page with many videos and YouTube if we are able to post YouTube videos after the debacle of the latest legal shenanigans with the FTC in the USA. Like all Atari systems, the Atari ST and its games are firmly planted in our vertical blank. Remember all those Mistron games, Steve? Oh, my God. I've, every single Mitchtron or Mictron, or whatever you want to say, game, I remember vividly because they were really the first games to roll off the presses for the Atari so ST. The cool thing and, about... Um, and I'm sorry, to, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So uh, the, the, One of the cool things is, at the time, either we didn't know or it's been added now, but you could only use the mouse at the time. To play like mud pies. Now mud pies doesn't look that look great. Wait, major motion was mouse only too. too. But it? now the new versions that I have, like I described, you can use the joystick for all of them. So mud pies becomes a rudimentary version of food fight now. Oh, that's cool. Um, and that's it's really cool. weird because it's like food fight mixed with Marauder, mixed with um, Robotron, mixed with uh, Berserk. So it's interesting. Um, and the other games are good too. They just uh, they made good games, and in the U.S. they were pretty much the only games that were really kind of enticed us and were available, especially major, especially major motion. And then to come along, we sometimes we purchased with a little key that allows you to have multiple joysticks plugged in at once. Uh, what was that? What was the shooting up the screen? You know the the um a better dead than alien. No, no, not better dead than alien. Yes, we bought that, but I meant the um uh the one where you're a commando going up the screen. You know the um. Oh, Leatherneck, but that's by that's a that's a micro deal game. Yeah, micro deal and Mistron. The companies were intertwined, is what I'm oh, saying. Oh, okay. Did did one so, distribute the other? Yeah. The... So Leather, I don't know which was which, um, but in, in essence, my story doesn't talk about Leatherneck. But Leatherneck was a micro deal slash Mistron game. Did you want to talk about that game, Steve? In Leatherneck, you uh, it was the hardest game I've ever made. I I can't believe how hard it was. So you would it was like Commando. Except you would you only fired forward and you couldn't see your shots, and so it made it was really off-putting. But you could play four people at once, which was nuts.
but I never was able to play four people once, but I have a story about that. So I would play one person and you'd go up the screen and immediately the enemies of which there were like five across the screen would throw hand grenades and blow you up. There's no way to get by it. It was ridiculous, but not no way, but you know, you had to practice. I did manage to play from like five or seven minutes or something like that until I couldn't get any further. So a couple of weeks ago, I loaded up the emulator and put it on and put the trainer on because I'm like, I'm going to play this to see what is at the end of the game. So I played it for like 15 or 20 minutes and all it does is repeat over and over and over again. I was so disappointed that there was nothing there. So after 30 years of wondering what was in Leatherneck, I realized that it was really nothing. Cool game. Another game that looked amazing on the color monitor for the ST2. Right. For some reason, just it looked great. So for that game and for Better Dead Than Alien, because they both you can play two people at the same time on the screen, which is something that I had never experienced before, even though I guess we never played it on Asteroids for the Atari 100. I made an Atari joystick. I took apart two of our Atari joysticks and hooked up the leads from the cord onto one joystick, you know, two plugs onto right. one joystick so that I could play two players at the same time and it basically have double the firepower. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and it was my first electronics. It worked. It was cool, um, but it really didn't help that much. At the end of the day, it was, the game was just really hard. So, uh, The Atari ST, that was the beginning of our 16-bit days. Exactly. I'm thankful for the Atari ST. I really am. I mean, yeah, Atari I would say for, great. for this Thanksgiving episode, I'm thankful for the Atari ST and the Atari 7800. Yeah, um, but mostly I'm for the oh, go ahead. Mostly for the ST, 7800 actually eventually found a, a halfway decent library of games, but it paled in comparison to both the ST games and, and the NES and, and Sega Master System games that were out there. It's just because there was no, they just they just couldn't make there. There weren't enough people making games. There wasn't the ST like legions of developers who were pushing it really hard. Right. The seventy eight hundred had that that would have done the same. But yeah, same with the. I mean, if yeah, if it had been like the same number of people that supported as a twenty six hundred, the Atari actually may have stayed in business. You never know. Yeah, so. totally. So anyway, Atari ST, awesome. I'm glad to start talking about it more i know we've had a we had a, one episode about the Atari ST already but it was about midi music and this is different so uh yeah this Atari ST is awesome it's our first it was our 16-bit console on facebook someone today asked you know were you jealous of people who had the nes or genesis my answer is hell no i had an atari ST. Well, wasn't it was genesis awesome. so genesis actually eventually like I had wished that there would be a game like Sonic the Hedgehog, and we actually got rid of ST before there was a Sonic the Hedgehog game yeah. style game for it. But, um, but no, no, hell no, I was never, I was never. My Atari ST. How would I? I'll leave you with this. How could I be jealous of Final Fantasy or Zelda or Dragon Warrior, which are all great games? But I had Dungeon Master, which I know. is maybe one of the greatest <laughs> games ever made. Right. Like it made those games look like kid stuff and I was ready for adult stuff yes at exactly exactly at 17 years old that's a good way to put it we're ready for adult stuff as a treat we are now going to hear a new song by Tony Longworth called Atomic Arcade Rave take it away Tony
All right, Tony, thanks a lot for the track. That was Atomic Arcade Rave by Tony Longworth. There'll be a link to his Patreon account in the show notes. Did you want to do a, uh, a watching, playing, reading really quick, Steve? Sure, sure. Uh, what about watching? What are you watching? I am starting Jack Ryan. I watched that. I, I think this season is um, weird. Good, kind of. Weird, kind of. I think if what happened at the end of that series actually happened, it w- there'd be more. There'd be more to talk about in the in the UN Security Council than than they let on in the. Oh, even in the first and even the first second episode or whatever. In the first episode, there would be, we the U.S. would have sent commandos to this yeah, country it, and blown it up. Like I don't even get like. It's a little weird. It's a, it's little, a little bit strange. like there was a, a SWAT game. And I think it, it was Police Cast SWAT, and it was with Daryl Gates. You would go and you would you would like try to get people out of house, but then they could get out of the house and get away from your SWAT team, and it's like. What do you mean there's no backup? Right? There's no, like, if a SWAT yeah. team is sent to a house, there's going to be, like, there's going to be force. rings of police cars around the neighborhood. No one's going to get out of the house anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it was like the whole thing. Was, I, I even told Jeannie when this thing started, it started, I said, if anything weird happens in, when they go to that country and there isn't, like, a giant force of people that come help them, then I'm going to be a little skeptical of this season. So, yeah, so it's, far, it's a little weird. Well, I watched two or three of them. It's been okay, though. It's not bad. I did watch the whole thing. I've been watching for weeks now, binge-watching BoJack Horseman, which I had no idea is the greatest TV show ever made. It's fantastic. I have not started the last the final season yet. Well, I'm only in season four right now. But well, it Steve, is have, you so seen, good. have you seen Rick and Morty? No, I've not. I know I need to watch that as well, which I will do soon. And then you were watching Fleabag, weren't you? Yeah, I watched the first season of Fleabag. I really liked it. I started the second season not quite as enamored by it, and I haven't finished. I'm on, like, episode four. It is one of those shows that actually has a definite ending, which is great. Well, uh, the Fleabag season one had an actual actual story arc that made sense. And when at the end, I'm like, oh, that was a great show. Right, exactly. It's a great show. I didn't need it. They didn't actually... Phoebe Waller-Bridge did not write it so there'd be a second season, and then they wanted one, so then she wrote a really good second season, too. Yeah, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. I'm sure it's great. I just haven't got to it. BoJack Horseman, every season has a story arc that it, you don't see it coming, and by the end it is of the season, so, it is it's so amazing. Like sad but amazing at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah. just so great. So, uh, what about playing? Any playing? Anything? I've been playing all Atari ST games to do videos. That's what I've been playing. Lots and I of... played the last thing I played was some Atari ST games to do videos. So that's, I just that's played a bunch of Mitchtron games, and then before, and I'm still in the middle of playing all the Atari USA releases, which are most mostly well, they're all arcade conversions. So. Yeah. And I did, I played, uh, last game I played was Leatherneck. I mean, that's pretty much all. I've, I've been spending most of my time wa- watching TV. How about reading? I have been reading uh, more of Arcade Perfect. So I, I uh, first I've been going through Computatory ST programming guide number two or whatever. There's a really good C program, like a little game. So I started copying that in to try and do it. What comes out of it is kind of a decent but slow arcade game. So now I'm looking for the programming section. I found that Atari Game Tools for the Atari ST, not the 7800 version. It's a different Atari Game Tools. And it's this awesome C library for making uh, I games they on have, the PC. They have a plugin for that for Visual Studio. Not uh, yet. If Express. you look at what's there, 
It's pretty. It uses like. Did I say Visual Studio Express? What's actually the Visual Studio called? Visual uh, Studio. A VS Code. Uh, code. Express, not for, not Express, for this. The, Express. I just dated myself so by like ten years. The guy who made of the Atari game tools for the seventy hundred. There's a plugin for. It, it works on the. Yeah. There's a whole separate thing. It just happens to be called Atari Game Tools. Also, it's for the ST. It uses. Sigwin and Mint Linux, like you have to do it in like on the PC, there's a way to install it and there's all this great stuff there and all these how-tos and you start with a simple program and it's great. And it could actually lead to us making some really cool Atari ST and STE games because it's much more powerful than anything else out there. Like it's not yeah, like no, making I, a STOS game or GFA basic game, it I, is. I like that idea too. I think I think I wanna do that as well. But I have, so as far as reading, I've been reading Chuck Klosterman's X, is there a new one? No, it's from a couple of years ago. It covers like 10 years of his um, writing from various publications. Some of it's really good. Some of it's still Chuck Klosterman annoying. It's good. I, it's kind of like visiting an old friend and you forgot like you used to get along and now you don't. Um, yeah, but still, yeah. But you get but you get along enough to uh, to actually uh, actually. You yeah, know, like I agree with him on like 90 percent of what he writes. And then uh, uh, programming, nothing. I, but I, but I like this ST idea, and and that's what I'm going to go go for now. So. And then uh, listening. Uh, nothing that I can uh, podcasts. Podcasts. All podcasts. Oh, All let's podcasts. let's besides Ferg and and Atari Bytes and the Atari and, and Antic and those, there was a really good one called Bad Batch. Bad Batch is about bad stem cells. And um, it's oh. really good. It's one from Wondery. It's one of those Wondery podcasts. Really good. I heard something about that. I also like listening to um, the How Did This Get Played podcast. Oh, God, I love that. Cool. Yeah. Um, they did a dace, and, hor- uh, dace, a horse dating sim this week. I know. That's great. What about uh, the XEGS? So XEGS game by game. They just did one on Gauntlet and Dark Chambers. You know who I never mentioned, but I, I don't mention all the time, but the Gen X Grown Up podcast. Those guys are great. The Gen X Grown Up podcast. Those guys have been, they go strong. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. They got a, like a weekly podcast and every other week are they, they do. Are they from the U.S.? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the, the Gen X Grown Up podcast are, is, is great and they do like, uh, I mean, they do so many episodes it's hard to keep up. And the other one I listen to is the uh, Retro Hour from the UK. That oh, one is really, that was that's usually really pretty good. good. Yeah. The Retro Hour is really good. Anyway, let's wrap this one up. What are you thankful for, Atari ST? Thankful for the Atari 7800 and the Atari ST. Of course, all the Atari systems, but I'm going back to the year 1986, and I'm thankful for the Atari 7800 and the Atari ST because we really want to do both of those that Thanksgiving. Hey, you know what, Jeff? I want to go out on a limb and say our next episode is going to be a Christmas episode, and it'll be our last episode of the season. I think it will be, won't it? Let's try to make that happen, okay? We'll make that happen. And will it cool. be one of the best Christmases ever, Steve? I think it will be. All right. So until next time, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Thanks for listening to Into the Vertical Blank, Season 2, Episode 15, the Atari 7800 NST, our next-gen super systems. Note, some of the music in this episode was produced using an 8-bit weapon 
NES and C64 chip sound library. Our next episode will be about the best Christmas ever. I hope to have you along for the ride. Until then, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.